You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at bccfarmercity.org. Okay, well, welcome. I want to welcome everyone to church this morning. We're going to continue what we've been talking about. We have been looking at what the scripture says about being led by the Spirit, not just, again, not just on a Sunday morning, but everyday living for a Christian. What does it mean to be led by Him and to follow His plan on not just on a big scale, but on every day, and what that looks like? We're quite a ways into this series. We've covered a lot of ground already. Um, as a kind of a core text before I really get rolling, I'm going to go to Romans 8 and verse 12. I just want to read a couple verses here. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then he summarizes, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These are the ones that are growing up, the ones that are taking their place in the family business. That's what that word sons is. It's a Greek word, weos. It's adult sonhood. But if you keep in mind, and we've already talked about all this, this whole chapter, and, and even most of chapter 7 before it, the context is this dichotomy of flesh versus spirit. Spirit, flesh versus spirit, and he's coming to a summary in these closing statements, and so we've spent a lot of time on this, but we live in a world where if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you, and God is endeavoring to lead you. But his leading is internal. He will lead you through your heart. A word you'll see a lot in the New Testament is conscience. He will lead you on the inside. The enemy of your soul will lead you with external things. And many of that, not even just coincidence or world around you, a lot of that is just flesh. The desires of this body and the things this body wants to do. But these are external things. So you have God trying to lead you His path. You have an enemy who, I want to say, wants to take you down His path. Really, more simply, any path other than God's. And to whatever degree he can get you off of God's path, he'll take what he can get. And the further he gets you away from God, the happier he'll be. But that's really what he's trying to do. And then last week I introduced a verse that we started to unfold with that wonderful message we had last Sunday. I had some interesting feedback from last Sunday's sermon. But it's 1 John 2.24. The Apostle John said this. He said, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, I'm pulling that a little out of context, and I freely admit that, but I'm looking at the principle in that verse, and then I'm putting it into a context of being led by the Holy Spirit. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now, that word abide, once again, means to remain to tarry, not to depart, to continue to be present, to be held and kept continually. It's the same word Jesus used in John 15 when he said, abide in the vine. Um, That's the same word going on in that passage. So John is saying, remain with what you heard from the beginning. Um, Don't depart 
from what you heard in the beginning. When God has given you a direction, He's given you a step, He's put you on His path, there's going to be a lot of things try to pull you off of it, get you distracted, and get you to step away. Here's the truth that we need to understand and be humble enough to recognize. Truth number one, you can absolutely hear from God. And I mean it that way. Scripture is abundantly clear. God leads his children if we'll learn to follow his lead, if we'll recognize him. But I'm not going to re-preach that. Now let me say it in another way. You can absolutely hear from God, this time with a comma. (laughs) You can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you've heard from God. You know exactly what He said. You know what He meant. And you know what your next next step is. You could be just as clear and confident as you could be that you have heard Him. And you can still miss it. And I can give you lots of examples in Scripture of times that that happened. Let me give you the first one. The absolute first time that ever happened. Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back to the garden. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Here's the enemy. Now the serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now we're not talking about animals here. We're talking about the devil. And really any other creature of darkness. Um, Here's the one that rose to the top of the pack. Okay, and but what does it what does scripture draw our attention to? Does it say now the devil was stronger than any other beast of the field or any other creature in the kingdom of darkness? Is that what he's saying? He was stronger. He was mightier. He was more powerful. None of the above. What's it say? He was more cunning. The devil is not a threat to you. Because he is or is not powerful. How does he become a threat to you? He's cunning. That's where scripture points our attention. What's that word cunning mean? Here we're in Genesis. It's a Hebrew word. But it means subtle, shrewd, crafty, and sly. Now you could take some of those words and go good or bad. But in this context, it's all bad. Most of the time, this word is used bad. So these are in a, in a negative sense. Subtle in a negative way. Shrewd, but in a bad way. Crafty and sly. And that kind of sounds bad. That's what cunning means. Now, the same thing is used to describe him in the New Testament. Technically not the same word because we're going from Hebrew to Greek. But let me give you a couple of examples. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now this is a passage talking about prayer and it's talking about the armor of God and waging battle. And yet once again, is it his power that you're waging against? It's not. The New Testament Greek word here is wiles. That's the Greek word methodia. It might be methodeia. I'm not a Greek. Um, It's where we get our English word method. But it means cunning arts, deceit, craft, and trickery. That's what we're up against. He's deceitful and he's, he's trickery. He uses trickery. 
All right. Um, that particular Greek word is only in your Bible twice. We just looked at one of them. The other one is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. And he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. It's the word plotting. That Greek word methodia or methodeia. It, it's plotting. It's deceitful plotting. Those are the words used to describe our enemy. He is an enemy, but he's crafty. And it's deceitful plotting. It's wiles. It's cunning that we're up against. It's not his power. Um, and I, I always hate doing this. I hate saying anything positive about him, so I'm going to say this in a negative sense. But we need to know, he's persistent. He does not give up. He will keep working at you and working at you. We don't tend to think this way, but it's true. He'll keep working at you for years. Decades if he has to. Trying to get you in the right situation where you make a bad choice so he can get you in the wrong place at the wrong time so he can get you off of God's path to whatever degree he can get away with. But he's persistent. And he does not give up. But what is his primary tool? He's deceptive. He's cunning. Alright? So back to Genesis 3. Let's go back to our Adam and Eve account. And he said to the woman, this is the serpent talking, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? And what did Eve say? And the woman said to the serpent, you know... I'm not exactly sure about that. We did have a conversation about the trees, but I've slept since then, and I'm just, I'm not quite sure what God said. Is that what she said? Not even close. And the woman, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Does she sound confused? Hmm. In fact, do you even really sense any hesitation in her answer? If she hesitated at all, I don't see it. The Bible did not highlight it. It just kind of looks like he asked the question and she said, No, here's the deal. We can eat any tree we want to. But now there's this one tree in the middle. It looks good, but that's God's. And we don't touch it because if we touch that one, we die. I mean, she's clear. We don't eat that tree. We got all the others. Now, I'm going to throw this out there. There are some preachers, and I'm not, I'm not trying to start anything, who have looked at that point and they said, well, Eve added to what God said. What they're doing is they're going back to Genesis chapter 2 in a conversation God had with Adam when he told Adam for the first time, you can eat of every tree but not this one. And in that conversation in chapter 2, he didn't say the part, and if you touch it, you die. And then we get to chapter 3, and Eve says, and if I touch it, I die. And so they're saying, well, she changed it. Eve messed up. God didn't say that. She's adding to it. Well, there's too much here to make such a black and white statement. I might say there's too much not here. Um... How do we know for sure? We have one recording in chapter 2, and now we have this thing in chapter 3. We're, we're jumping to assume, uh, assumptions to go either way. 
I think we're trying to make a point that might not be there. She was very clear. Now, did she add to it? Or did Adam? Maybe Adam added to it. Husbands are good at that. Maybe he decided to stretch the rules a little bit. Let's, let's draw the boundary even tighter. Let's not let my wife get even close to the, uh, the boundary here, the edge. And so I'm just I'm going to rein it in. I could make a pretty good argument that that's what happened. Or maybe, maybe she just quoted better. Maybe that was in a future conversation. Here's the thing. I don't even, I didn't go back and check this. So if I get this wrong, call me on it. But I don't even think Eve was around yet when that chapter 2 conversation happened. Adam lived a season before they created Eve, and he was naming animals and he was doing stuff, but they just decided, you know, this really isn't quite right. He needs a helpmate. And we don't know how long a period of time that was. And then Eve comes along, and praise God, life got better. And again... We don't know how long a period of time that was where Adam and Eve just lived in a wonderful existence prior to this day in the garden when the serpent comes along. How long? Sometimes we think it was a couple days because I just read a few verses, right? It could have been years. Could have been decades. How do you know? Scripture doesn't tell us, so we don't know. So let's not assume. So all that to say, I'm I'm not going to make that argument. When I look at what Eve said, the main thing I do see, she's not confused. She knows what her boundary is. If you want to argue about where that boundary came from, Adam or God, whatever. Eve knew where it was. And she had, there was no confusion, no hesitation in her. So what's the verse I'm using as an overarching verse for this message? Back to 1 John 2, 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Coming into this day, did she know what God had said? Yeah. No hesitation at all. So that's what needed to abide in her. But verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the serpent trying to do? I do like to point out, that, and this is one of his most common tools, He's trying to get her to doubt what God had said. And he does that to all of us in a variety of situations. He will try to get us to doubt what God has said. Doubt what the written word of God says. Anywhere he can get you to begin to doubt something God has said, now he's working on you. And he's trying to move you away. But in a more simple sense, there's what he's doing here. He's trying to move Eve away from what she heard in the beginning. In whatever deceitful tool he can, he's trying to get her to doubt it and move away from it. So verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, who was standing right there the whole time, who was watching every bit of this and hadn't said a word. Everyone likes to pick on the woman. We'll see in a minute here. She was deceived. His tricks worked. 
I've not found a verse that says Adam was deceived. He watched the whole thing happen and let it. What was his job? You go back to the previous chapter. His job was to keep and guard the garden. What was he doing this day? Not doing his job. He should have ran the serpent out of the garden. I think we've got our heart on the wrong one there. If you know what I mean by we're too hard on Eve and not Adam. I think it's the other way around. We're putting our heart in the wrong place. Just saying. That was just me, by the way. <laughs> Do what you want with that. Anyway, let's get back to this. So what's going on? Here's the bigger picture I want you to see then. Here's the battle going on in the garden. And it's the same for all of us. He has come in to deceive them and to get them to move away from what God has said. He's not coming in with a big display of power. He's coming in with trickery. Where is this battle happening? In their mind. The war is being waged in their mind. Here's what we don't like to think about. In their reasoning. It's all going on. Eve is thinking, hmm, now God said this, but boy, this this little serpent here, he's got this idea, and it kind of makes sense. And she's reasoning, trying to rethink and reevaluate and come up with a new opinion of why I think this plan looks better and maybe I can eat of this tree. You see this entire battle, if you want to call it that, it was all fought in the mind. That's where we fight. That's where we wage war. That fits both Old and New Testament patterns that we've already looked at. Let's look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Three things I'll point out there. First one, he confirms he deceived Eve. Genuinely, she fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. And the tool he used was trickery, cunning, deception. And then number two, where did it all happen? In the mind. And he lets us know. Likewise, we could have the same problem. Our minds be corrupted by the same trickery, the same deceptfulness. I didn't say that right here. Deceptfulness. Deceit. Done with it. By the same deceit. But then now, what's the third point right there? Corrupted from what? The simplicity that is in Christ. My father's in the corner saying, four years of college, and he still can't talk. Shh, it was seven. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm not helping. God's direction to us is always simple. Amen. What he said to Adam and Eve, simple. What? Don't eat of that tree. Any other tree, have at it. Make yourself happy. You have one tree to keep track of. Don't eat that one. Simple. And yet by deception, moved us away from it. Can I say this? Just because it's simple, and just because we know exactly what God told us to do or not to do, 
that won't stop the enemy from doing everything he can to deceive you and get you to move away from even something that is simple. Something that is clear as could be. One quick question. So in that moment when they ate of the fruit, who's leading them? They are no longer being led by God, which up to that point is all they'd known. When they followed the trickery and went down the new path and said, I'm going to eat this to be wise, they were now being led by the devil. Now that sounds kind of led by the devil, but where did it all happen? Trickery, cunning, it all happened in the mind. We fight battles in the same place. It's in the mind. The devil will introduce a new thought, a new temptation, maybe even take scripture and twist it a little bit, pull it out of its context, try to get you to buy into This isn't in my notes, but do you remember when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? Remember, even in that occasion, the devil quoted scripture to Jesus. How many Christians have gotten off track because the devil came quoting scripture and they bought it? Well, yeah, scripture says that. The devil or Jesus had to turn around and put it right back on him. No, but scripture says this too. Remember that account? What's that all come down to? We don't like to think about this, but it's true. When we decide that we use our thinking to come up with a different plan and we bite, we, we bite the apple, so to speak, we follow the deceived plan, what's really going on? There's an element of pride in that. Now you may think, pride? How's pride get in that? In a big picture sense, with our wise intellect and our deductive reasoning and our ability to process, we have now created a situation, or can I say a path, different from the simple one that God already gave us. And in essence, we're saying, I'm smart enough to come up with a better idea than what God gave me. Does that make sense? We're good at that. Just, I'm talking about mankind in general. I'm not trying to pick on us individually, although we've all been there. What, on one hand, and I've said even in this series, God gave you a brain. You're a smart person. You should use the brain God gave you. Develop the brain God gave you. You have it for a reason, and most people do not even begin to tap into its potential. All that's true. But at the same time, don't be led by it. Be led by God. Much of the time, the two will agree. Praise God. But on those occasions where your head's saying one thing and your heart, your conscience is saying another, better follow your heart, even if it makes zero sense to your head. Why? Use your head, but don't be led by it. We follow our heart. We follow the Holy Spirit on the inside. (laughs) You know what dangerous words are? Yeah, I know what God said, but I've been thinking about it. That doesn't end well. That's a dangerous place to be, and the devil loves that. If he can get you to question what God has said. I'll say this, and then I'm going to move to another example. Don't ever think that you're going to match wits with the devil. Again, that's pride. We, we like to put a 
big confidence in our wits and our intelligence and we're smart people. And I'm not saying you're not, but his number one tool is deceptiveness. And he's been doing it a lot longer than you have. How long has he been around? By biblical standards, we got him back at least a few thousand years. And I believe longer than that. But he was around when Adam and Eve started. He's been doing this a long time. And he's matched wits with people a whole lot smarter than us. And won. The only way we defeat him, abide with what you heard. Stick with what God has said. And do not be moved away from it. Your safety is in what God has said to you. Now let me give you, I got one big example we're going to look through and then we'll close for this morning. But I'm not, this is not my closing yet, but I'm just letting you know I got one big example I want to look at. We're going to go to the book of Acts and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 20. In the life of Paul, we're not exactly near the end, but I could maybe say we've crossed the halfway point of his ministry. I'm not sure. Um, I believe it was after his third missionary journey when he made that last trip into Jerusalem and he gets himself arrested. And that's when he appeals to Caesar and he gets sent up through the system of the Roman government, makes his way all the way back to Rome, lives under house arrest there for several years. I do believe he eventually got released from that because he went on another short missionary journey and at another point he gets arrested yet again and then at some point he dies a martyr's death. But we're somewhere down on that first time he gets arrested and sent to Rome. That's kind of where we're picking up here. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, uh, he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Now I'm going to pause, because he goes on to explain a little bit, but I want to pause. In this verse is a picture of someone being led by the Spirit. He says, I am bound in the Spirit to, to Jerusalem. He says, I know... The Holy Spirit is leading me to Jerusalem. That's where I need to go. I don't exactly know everything that's going to happen there. He says, I haven't got it all figured out, but I know I'm supposed to go. That's what he's saying in this verse. And it's a perfect picture of being led. So many times that's what God will do with you. He'll show you the step in front of you. He might give you even some glimpses further down the road. But rarely will he give you the whole picture. He won't let you know everything. Why? So there's always an element of faith. There's always an element of trust. You see that in this picture. He has no doubt. Right now I'm headed to Jerusalem. He says, I don't know everything, but I know that's where I'm going. It's a perfect picture. Look at that verse in the Amplified. I think I've got that on the screen. It says, and now you see, I am going to Jerusalem, bound by the Holy Spirit, and obligated and compelled by the convictions of my own spirit, not knowing what will befall me there. So I just want to point that out. Here you have an apostle walking very close with God, led by the Spirit, knows where he's headed, and he's not straying from it. But he doesn't have it all figured out. He doesn't know every piece, but he's following. He's trusting God's plan. Um, Now let's go back to my New King James Version, but go back to verse 22 again. I'll pick up. He says, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, verse 23, except, he says, here's what I do know, 
The Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. He says, I got chains and tribulations waiting for me when I get there. But what's he say in verse 24? But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life as dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So what's he saying? I know my next step is to go to Jerusalem. He says, I am bound to the Holy Spirit who's telling me that. The Amplified points out, my own conscience is telling me that. He says, everywhere I look, I know I'm going to Jerusalem. He says, now, on my way, in every city I stop in, they're telling me, bad things are waiting for you in Jerusalem. Trials, tribulations, what did they say? Persecutions are waiting for you in Jerusalem. But what's he saying? That doesn't move me. He says, I know what I've been told. I know I'm going to Jerusalem, and none of these things are going to stop me. They do not move me. I will not be distracted. What's his primary goal? Follow God's plan. He says, I want to finish my course with joy. I want to finish the course God put me on, and I'll not be distracted from it. And you can tell in that passage, that's number one. If that passage is bumpy along the way, so be it. If there's persecutions along the way, so be it. What did he say? Nor do I count my life as dear to myself. He says, if it costs me my life, so be it. I will not be moved from the path God has put me on. What? God's plan for his life. And he says, I'll not be moved. When you get into that place with God's plan for your life, then nothing will move you. You will not let anything distract you. That's a strong place to be. And no one will talk you out of it, including people close to you. I'm not just talking about random people, enemies. We saw an example last week to a degree. We'll see it even more this morning. Friends, family, people who love you, yet they're trying to get you off of God's plan for your life. Um, let me give you a couple examples of that. Uh, we're going to jump over to chapter 21, verse 4. He says, And find, finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, we'll dig into that in a moment. But here's one example. He spent seven days with some, some disciples, and they're saying, Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Now, we'll come back to that one. Jump down to verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come down to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and his feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we, let me define the we, the gospel of Acts, the gospel, the book of Acts was written by Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke. He was a Gentile, one of the only Gentile authors in the Bible, but he traveled with Paul extensively. And he knew several of, of the other uh, apostles. Um, and he's writing this book. 
And then he says, so he says, we, this would be Luke and all the other traveling companions. They had a whole little group of them. And those from the, that place where they were staying, they all pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So in that first little visit, there were disciples putting pressure on Paul saying, don't go. But he says, I'll not be moved. They go to the next city, and then a prophet shows up with a word from the Lord. And now, not only the people in that local church, now all of his traveling companions, all of them have turned. And they're pressuring him, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. Bad things are happening. Now we can open a theological can of worms. I'll ask you a question that has plagued scholars. I won't say that. I'm exaggerating. Scholars have debated this question for hundreds of years. There's more. I'm not going to say it plagued anyone, but okay. And the question is this. Did Paul miss God? Was God telling him, don't go to Jerusalem? And that stubborn little man just missed it, and he went anyway. You know, that Paul, he's just a glutton for punishment. And if he'd not gone, he'd avoided all kinds of trouble, and he would have had more time to go preach the gospel in a lot of places. Instead, he gets himself arrested, almost dies, and, and people make all kinds of arguments. Okay, so let's dig into that. Did Paul miss God? Well, let me ask this question then. Did the Holy Spirit tell Paul to go or not to go? Because that's really what it comes down to. What did the Holy Spirit tell him to do? Now, when we started, Paul said, I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, right? So in Paul's mind, I have my, the, the, my own conscience and the leading of the Holy Spirit both telling me, go to Jerusalem. Then we get to verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there just seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now that's a little King James. Yeah, I like my new King James, but what's, what's it mean? When it says they told Paul through the Spirit, what's that mean? We need to unpack that one just a little bit. It kind of gives the impression, well, the Holy Spirit was speaking through the disciples and told Paul, don't go. That's not what that means. Um, a couple other translations, not mine, is J.B. Phillips. <laughs> the Phillips translation says, They felt led by the Spirit again and again to warn Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Okay, so now what it's saying is they felt led. Let me give you another translation. The Williams translation. Because of impressions made by the Spirit... They kept on warning Paul not to set foot in Jerusalem. All right? So what this is, they are getting impressions. This would be most likely what we talked about a few weeks ago, the inward witness. They are looking to the inside. They are searching for what the Holy Spirit might say, and they're getting impressions. All right? They're picking up on something. And it seems bad. And they're telling him, don't go. All right. But what I want to point out, what I'm about to separate then, these are disciples. These are not prophets. These are disciples. Like every Christian can be a disciple. Are you with me? A follower of Jesus. And they're picking up on the inward witness, just like every Christian can, who learns to follow the Lord on the inside. 
Every Christian who learns to recognize their conscience and become more aware of the Holy Spirit on the inside, this is available to all Christians. Are you with me? But now when we get to verse 10, we're separating here. In verse 10 it says, And we stayed there many days, and a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. This is different. This is someone who is standing in an office. Just as you saw prophets in the Old Testament, there are still prophets in the New Testament. And he is one. And notice what it says in verse 11. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and then he said, thus says the Holy Spirit. You'll see that same phraseology in the Old Testament. Many of the prophets would say, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying. He's doing the same thing here. Here's what the Holy Spirit is saying. Now this is not impressions. He is now standing in an office and he is speaking what he's hearing the Holy Spirit tell him. That's how the office of prophet works. Now, Pay attention to what he said. Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Period. In quote. Did the Holy Spirit then tell Paul, Don't go. Anywhere in that quote... Did he say, don't go? No. What did the Holy Spirit say? Here's what's going to happen when you get there. He didn't say, don't go. So what's going on? In every town Paul went to, this same type of thing was happening. The Holy Spirit is preparing him for what he is about to go through on God's path for his life. This is what Jesus told us the Holy Spirit will do. Go back to John 16, 13. Jesus said, red letters, although not on our screen. (laughs) The red's hard to read. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And what else will he do? He will tell you things to come. That's his job. And that's exactly what he's doing with Paul. He's preparing him. Now, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested. And you're going to get put on trial. He's letting him know ahead of time. Brace yourself. Here's what's coming. He's letting him know what's ahead. And what did Paul say to that? I know. Every town I go to, they're telling me, I'm going to get bound. I'm going to get arrested. He's like, I got it. But I'm going. He knows he's supposed to go. He's getting ready. So now back up. What was going on with the disciples then? Are you with me? They were doing what every Christian should be able to do. They're looking on the inside. They're searching their heart. Holy Spirit, what's going on? What's going on? And they're picking up on stuff. And they're right. They're picking up on going to get arrested chains are waiting for you however you want to word it got some speed bumps coming in the road ahead they were picking up on it and they were right that is what was coming but then what did they do then they put their own interpretation on it we love Paul 
We don't want Paul going through a hard time. We don't want Paul arrested. We don't want him to die. We love Paul. So then what did they do? Don't go. We want good things for you. Stay away from Jerusalem. Go somewhere else. Anywhere else. Don't go to Jerusalem. Are you seeing it? Did they hear the Holy Ghost? Yes. But did they miss it? 100%. They put their own interpretation on it based on what they wanted to happen or not happen. Are you seeing that? That's a dangerous place to be. Because a lot of Christians get in that place. You really genuinely seek the Lord and start picking up on some stuff. But then you leave your prayer closet too soon. And you put your own spin on it. There's a word we like to use in our culture. Put your own spin on it. And you take off in the wrong direction. They kind of figured out a little bit on what was going on. At best, they should have stayed in that prayer closet a little longer and figure out, well, Lord, what do we do with that information? Do we go? Do we not go? What's going on here? Pray a little longer. Hmm. All right. Then you, uh, you go down to the other one. You got a prophet who's speaking accurately for God. Didn't tell him not to go. Just letting him know, here's what's going to happen. Did Paul say, oh no, bad things, I don't want to go? Not even a little bit. Why? This was kind of a descriptive piece of his calling. How many times has he had speed bumps in his calling? Have you studied his ministry? He even has that one passage, I think it's in Corinthians, where he starts rattling off, well, I got arrested this many times, I've been beaten this many times, he got stoned and left for dead at least once, I think twice, Um, stripes put on his back, I think three times, Um, he was shipwrecked once, remember all that, and he lists all these things off, and these were all things that happened while he was on the path that God had put him on. But can I remind you, he knew a lot of this ahead of time. Do you remember on what we call Paul's Damascus Road experience when he was on his way to Damascus to go arrest Christians and then the light shone from heaven and Jesus started talking to him and he gets saved on the road to Damascus but then he gets blinded and he can't see and they lead him by hand all the way into Damascus and then Jesus starts talking to a disciple in Damascus saying, I need you to go pray for Paul. Or actually, he's still Saul at that time. I need you to go pray for a guy named Saul. And Dan and I is like, I heard of him. I don't want to go anywhere near him. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, he's mine. But do you remember what he said? This is in uh, Acts 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. There's a whole lot of this, not every detail, but Paul knew when he signed on, yes, Lord, I will follow your plan for my life. He knew from the beginning there's going to be some bumpy parts. There's going to be some suffering involved. I'm going to go through some stuff. And it's not shocking. He brought the Pauline revelation. He wrote more of your New Testament than any other author. You don't think the devils of hell fought him every step of the way? Come on now. But he knew that going in. It didn't surprise him. Who I'm going to get arrested? <laughs> Again? Won't be the first time. Won't be the last. 
He wasn't shocked at all. And he also wasn't moved by it. And then did you notice, remember in that verse, Jesus said, and he's going to bear my name before kings. After he gets arrested in Jerusalem, he gets thrown into the Roman, can I call it the Roman penal system? Because he appeals to Caesar. And so he starts working his way up through the system all the way to Rome. And all along the way, these other lower grade kings in the Roman government keep saying, yeah, bring him before me. I want to hear him. And he was preaching the gospel to Roman government officials all the way to and in Rome. How many Roman, uh, from the Caesar on down, how many Roman government officials heard the gospel from the mouth of Paul? Why? Because he got arrested in Jerusalem. And they might not have heard it any other way. A lot of stuff happened. Why? Because he got arrested. A lot of good things happened. He knew full well, this is all part of my ministry. This doesn't surprise me in the least. Hmm. He said, none of these things move me. In fact, let's go back to the end of it then. We'll wrap this up. Down in verse 13. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What's he saying? Quit playing these emotional cards on me. Stop your crying. What do you, can I put it this way? Stop tugging on my heartstrings. That's what he's saying. Stop all this. He says, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be arrested. I'm ready to die if I have to. What? I will not stray from God's plan for me. I'm ready for this. Now, we're at that point. They tried. Not only the, the disciples in that church, everyone in his own party turned on him and every one of them pressured him. Don't go! And he said, stop it. I'm going. I'm ready. All right? And then I look at verse 14. He's not going to be moved. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. Saying what? The will of the Lord be done. Really? They just spent all this time putting all this pressure on Paul saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. And they didn't know what God's will was. They hadn't taken any time to pray about it. They picked up on bad things happening and put their own will on it. We don't want him to go. They didn't know what God's will was and admitted it. Dangerous. Now, were they being evil and did they have bad intentions? No. They were good people. They loved Paul. Which, maybe that was the problem. No. But they loved Paul. They wanted good things, but they didn't take the time to figure out what's God's plan. What's His will? God's going to use this as a vehicle to preach the gospel in a lot of places who might not otherwise hear it. So what did Paul do? He abided in what he heard from the beginning, and he would not stray from it. Are you with me? He was strong, and he was not easily moved. Once he knew what God was telling him to do, now he was like the bulldog who'd latched onto something. He wasn't going to let go. And he wasn't going to be moved by family. He wasn't going to be moved by friends. He was not moved by the thought of chains and persecutions. 
Been there before? Before, do it again. I'll close this morning with 1 John, back to 1 John 2.24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Hmm. See, Paul never forgot what the Lord told him all the way back in Damascus. He never forgot that. And he knew there's going to be bumps along the way. I'm ready for them. But the same grace that got me here will get me through and out the other side. He was abiding in the Word and he would not be moved from it. And he did what he set out to do, which was what? He finished his race. He held true to the course. We can do the same.